Good evening. Praise the Lord for another opportunity to pray and also to hear God's Word. If you would, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We'll read from verse 9 through verse 26. And this is God's holy word, out of respect for God's word, if you would please stand with me. And let's hear the word of God together. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then, are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Amen. Let us ask the Lord again to bless his word now. O our Father in heaven, Lord, we have here before us your great word, your glorious word, your pure word, your preserved word, your true word, your living word, your mighty word. Lord, we are not here to entertain ourselves or to have an interesting talk, but, O Lord, to hear from heaven, to hear your living word. Lord, to hear what it says about us, to hear what it says about you, and, O oh Lord, that you would transform us and have mercy upon us. O oh Lord, let your word live tonight, we pray. O oh Lord, blow upon our weak bodies. And, O oh Lord, if there are any dead souls here, Lord, like those dry bones in Ezekiel's vision, Lord, raise them up. O oh Lord, do your mighty work for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you for standing.
So tonight I want to speak from Romans chapter 3 on the subject from none righteous to all righteous. From none righteous to all righteous. None are righteous by the law. But all who believe in Christ are righteous by faith in Him. Praise God indeed. How does the God who made heaven and earth see you? What does He see? The great day is coming when you and I will all stand before the holy God. It will be an awful day, the day of judgment, when God will make known His sentence against every sin. And this Bible that I hold in my hands contains a preview of what the great judge sees. If you want to know what he thinks about you, you need look no further than this book. It's the most practical thing in the world for you to be concerned about how God sees you. Lay aside all the distractions of your mind, the distractions of this world. Let the roar of our earthly thoughts lie still for a while as we turn our minds with full focus to the truth of God's word and what it says about us and God's righteousness. Let's consider God's righteous view of our sin. But first, let's take notice of where we are in the book of Romans. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul was keen to visit and encourage the saints in Rome. They are God's beloved people. He wants to preach God's great gospel to them because the gospel is God's great power for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile. In the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Paul magnifies God's gospel and blasts all of man's supposed achievements. No one can achieve righteousness by keeping the law. All of those saints at Rome were saved from God's dreadful wrath by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that wrath is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness of wicked men, all ungrateful atheists, all absurd idolaters, and all arrogant humanists. God judges all unthankful, idolatrous men and women by allowing them to sin more, increasing their judgment. In Romans chapter 2, Paul then tells us that the aging cathedral of self-righteous Phariseeism is condemned, and he goes about to bulldoze it and knock it clear to the ground. Self-righteous Jews are not right with God at all. They think they're better than others. They have the law, but don't keep it. They teach others, but don't teach themselves. They rest in religious symbols, but not in the reality of spiritual things. None of their rosy opinions of themselves are right. God is the judge, and he will bring them to judgment. And his sentence will stand to eternity. Eternal glory will be given to all those who are consistently righteous and eternally misery, eternal misery will be given to those who continue in wickedness. That's in Romans chapter 2. A profession of holiness doesn't count, but possession of holiness. Religious affiliation doesn't matter, only obedience to God's word. God considers Gentiles who keep his law to be Jews, and he considers Jews who disobey God's law to be filthy Gentiles. That's Romans chapter 2. And so then we come to Romans chapter 3, and the first part that we didn't read Paul asks, so what good is there of being a Jew? If being an ethnic Jew isn't how God brings you into his kingdom, then what good is it? Well, he says, there's, there's good every way because the Jews had God's word. The revelation of God's miracles, God's redemptive acts, the pictures of the types and shadows of the Old Testament that pointed to our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God's word is not nullified by the Jewish community disobeying it and not believing it. Their apostasy didn't nullify his truth. God is vindicated. And from chapter 3, verse 9, where we pick up, Paul starts to draw gospel truths from those Jewish scriptures, which are our scriptures as well. The Old Testament is our testament as well. The first two major things that Paul draws from the scriptures are our subject today. Now he goes on beyond these two things to talk about other very important, crucial matters, sanctification, reckoning ourselves to be one with Christ in chapter 6, representation there in chapter 5 of Christ being the new Adam. All through the book of Romans, he's pulling things out of the Old Testament scriptures and showing how they apply to Christ and his people. But today we're going to look at the first two, the awful filthiness of man's sin and the glory of the righteousness that is by faith upon all who believe, the righteousness of God himself. So first of all, we have his sentence against wicked men, none righteous. Paul is declaring that both Jews and Gentiles are very sinful, very bad, utterly defiled, utterly wretched. If you're a church person or a non-church person, if you're a religious person or irreligious, if you consider yourself spiritual or unspiritual, you must receive the sentence that the righteous judge makes against you. By nature, you are very wretched, sinful, defiled, evil in his sight. As we come to this passage, we might cry with the angel trumpeter in Revelation, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of earth for the declaration that God has made against sin. If we could only see sin like God sees it, how terrified we would be to hear what he says. The only reason we don't all fall down in absolute agony of spirit when hearing these words is because we're so clouded by sin itself. First of all, the Apostle Paul here declares in verse 9, Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. He says, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved, chapters 1 and 2, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Both the grand categories of the world are here represented, Jews and Gentiles. We could expand it to represent religious and irreligious, children of Christian parents and children from heathen stock. What does he say about them? They are under sin. What does it mean to be under sin? It means to be ruled over by it, overwhelmed by its force, unable to escape from its terrible power and its damning power. In Romans 7, 14, Paul says of his human sinful nature, even as a believer, I am carnal, sold under sin. The vile slave master has won his prize. He's now closed the deal. The price is paid, and he takes his slave home. He clamps the shackles over my wrists and says, you're mine, and you'll be none the better for it. You'll do whatever I want, and it will not be good for you. Sin, oh, sin is a hard master. Hell is its goal. Misery is its middle. Pleasure is its promise. You might have heard it said, and it's so true, sin will take you places you don't want to go, and it will keep you there longer than you want to stay. And hell is one of those places. 
It is the place. Under sin, well might Adam and Eve have cried out, under sin, when they hid from God's voice in the garden in the cool of the day. Under sin, Adam and Eve repeat when God issues his righteous curses for their breaking his law. Under sin, when they're driven out from the garden and the cherubim with flaming swords guard the way to the paradise of God. Under sin, Cain cries as he's driven out to be a fugitive, and he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Under sin, cry the millions who perished in the muddy waters of Noah's flood. And that was God's righteous judgment. Under sin, cry the congregation of Israel, bitten by serpents and consumed in the gaping jaws of the earth as they rebelled and complained and griped against God's provision and God's blessing. Under sin, if you are not in Christ, you are under sin. And if you're not crying out with terrible agony, I am under sin, it is only because that under sin is so true of you. You are under sin, and sin, your slave master, has blinded your eyes. If you could only see your slavery, you would cry out like blind Bartimaeus to the Lord Jesus, Jesus, Master, Son of David, the King, the one who has power, have mercy on me. Have mercy on us. Where else can we be relieved of this slave master except Christ? Who can free us? Is there no mighty conqueror who can deliver us? That is the most important question in the world. And yes, it has an answer. Christ can deliver us. And he does, as we will see. But how does God know that we are under sin? Maybe you say, well, I am an exception to that rule. Yes, many are under sin, but not me. Well, here in Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us that God has done two things. He's taken a census of the world, and he also has done a physical examination of each of the inhabitants of the world. God took a census of sinners, and he found them all utterly sinful. God did his own count. He did his own assessment. He didn't send out those census workers who sometimes fill out the papers on their own just to get their work done. His census has no mistakes because he is perfect. His eyes are pure. They see through everything. And what did he find? There is none righteous. And here the Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 14 to give us the census results. The census was done hundreds of years before, but Paul says it's exactly the same now as it was then. And what does the census say? There is none righteous. Verse 10. God's righteousness demands perfect conformity to his law. What is righteousness? Well, righteousness in general is measuring up to God's perfect standards. It means being approved by God's law, free from the guilt that would make us liable to the punishment that's due to sin and possessing virtues that please and honor God. God is always righteous because he's the standard, and he always measures up to his own standard. He is righteous. He is pure. We don't have it, my friends. Paul emphasizes it with an emphatic repetition. No, not one. There is none righteous. No, not one. And just in case you missed it, that's why he repeated it. No, not one. 
as you pass through this world and meet amazing people, and there are amazing people in the world, unbelievers, people with great minds, people with astonishing capabilities of remembering things and of processing the information of God's world and of forming relationships, being faithful to you as neighbors, as family members. You'll meet amazing people, but keep it in the back of your mind. God's word says there is none righteous. No, not one. Verse 11, he continues with the census report. There is none that understandeth. There are many who hear, many who see, but there are none who understand by nature. You might say none understands? Yes, no one gets it spiritually unless the Holy Spirit of God opens their hearts. We might gather information. We might be able to process that information in a human way, but we will not get God's point in what he is telling us. The God of Israel made this distinction to the prophet Isaiah. Go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their, ear, with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. There is none who understands. None who understands. Have you been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God? Have you been given a new nature, a new mind, a new heart? Or are you in your natural sinful condition? If he has made you new, then you understand. If he has not, you do not understand. You might think that you've gathered some information about God, and you may have. You might be able to memorize many scriptures, but you do not understand. Your light is darkness. And Jesus said, if the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? And he was speaking to the Pharisees who had much light, but no understanding. None who understandeth. Verse 11, the end of the verse, he says, there is none that seeketh after God. And this is no wonder if we believe what the scriptures say about sinful man. The scripture says that the carnal man is enmity against God. How do enemies seek their enemy? While we were yet enemies, God reconciled us to himself by the death of his son. Do enemies seek one another out? Paul says, no, there is none that seeketh after God. Well, actually, sinners do seek God. They seek him out to destroy him. Just think of that band that was led by Judas who came out seeking Jesus. The Lord Jesus said, whom do you seek? In this case, they were seeking God, but it was only to spill his blood on the ground. Many seek religion. Many seek something to satisfy that demand for meaning in life. Many seek a God of their own making. But the Bible declares, none without the working of the Holy Spirit of God Without the power that comes from heaven, none seeketh after God. If you are seeking God, praise Him for it. Praise Him for it. Because He does make exceptions to this census. He's talking about the way things are by nature, in our natural condition. None seeks after the real God, the true God. Absolutely none by nature. Verse 12, 
They are all gone out of the way. They have declined, turned from the path that God set out for them. What was the paradise of Eden, that garden where God put Adam and Eve, but a wonderful path for Adam and Eve to walk on in serving God and honoring Him? They declined from the path. We all slipped out of the way with them. We slipped to the side. We're not there anymore. We're not where God put us at the beginning. And oh, what a great fall that slide, that decline was. It says in verse 12b, as the next part of the census, together, that's another universal, all, together they have become unprofitable. The idea there is useless, defiled, filthy. This is the moral effect of our sin. God's image in us is damaged. God's glory is deformed in us. We're not the shining images of God that we were meant to be. If you break glass at my house, a glass, if you break one of my wife's glasses, I'll forgive you. They all came from the thrift store anyway. But if you break a glass at the White House and you do it with your fist in the president's face, the result will be very different. We have broken God's image in man. Adam broke it first. And you might say, well, it's all his fault. He broke the glass. Has your fist not been in God's face? Have you not broken the glass more? Have you not smashed it further to more pieces? The marring of God's image in man is not a sickness. It's a crime. And it's a crime to be judged by the God that it is against. For God's man and God's woman are to be in his image, glorious, good. That's the way he made them. But to break, to make it unprofitable, to mar, to misshape, to make crooked what he made is a crime. And it's worthy of punishment. He says at the end of verse 12, There is none that doeth good, no not one. By God's definition of good, you're not. You're not good. I am not good by nature. There is none who doeth good. No, not one. At the very beginning, when God had created that wonderful garden and this entire world, the heavens above, the earth beneath, the water on the earth, the animals, the plants, man and woman, God said it was very good. But now there is none good. No, not one. This is a a surprising declaration, a sober one, since we think there's so much good in us. Our flesh, we, we look at ourselves in our mirror and we look pretty good. We think, well, you know, I'm not as bad as so and so next to me. I'm pretty good. But God has no good thing to say about us. He gives, again, that emphatic repetition No, not one. No, not one. So in God's census, on the last page, what's the summary report? You know, you go through the census, you can read all the demographics and how everybody's distributed throughout the country. The last page might have all those summaries. So here's the summary. 100% bad and 0% good. And God is angry with the wicked. Every day. 
There is none righteous. But not only has God conducted a broad census, he's also turned his attention, his clear and piercing, eternal and pure and holy eye, to do a physical examination of each and every one of us in this world. You might have thought it couldn't get any worse than what we've already seen, but it does get worse because he sees all that is in us. And here Paul moves from the head to the feet and then back to the eyes. He begins with the head, the throat, tongues, lips, mouth, and he sees there's none righteous. In verses 13 and 14, he says, Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So we see in 13 and 14, he speaks about the mouth. Lips, tongue. 15 and 16, he speaks about our feet, where we go. And 17 as well. And then 18, our eyes. There's no fear of God before their eyes. You've probably had a physical exam before. If you haven't, you haven't missed anything special. But among other embarrassments, the doctor makes you stick out your tongue. Open your mouth and stick out your tongue. And children, that's the only time you're allowed to stick out your tongue at an adult. Our heavenly physician does the same thing. He examines our throat, our tongue, our lips, and our mouth. Just like with the human body, what you see on that tongue will often be an indication of the health of that body. So our lips, our tongue, our mouth, our throat show something about who we are. And what does our heavenly physician see? He's a perfect doctor. He doesn't have to use a light. His eyes are the light. He sees in there. Paul again draws from the Old Testament scriptures, or what we might call the law, because here he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles, and he brings in the law, the Old Testament scriptures, and proves what some might be surprised to hear. He says all, the context demonstrates that he's indicating that all have this problem. He says their throat is an open sepulcher. A sepulcher is a grave, and a grave with a body in it. That's from Psalm 5, 9. This is a terrible image, a person's throat stinking like a dead body. You've probably met someone with bad breath. Sometimes that powerful smell arises from some unhealthy inner recess of the person's being. You don't want to know where it comes from, and you don't want to smell it again. Paul says your sinful words stink. Sinful words nauseate those who hear them. They poison their minds. They spread death and destruction. How do we tempt others to sin? Sometimes we use actions, but very often we use words. Remember, this is God's description. This is how God views the throat of the wicked. And by Paul's implication, since he begins with those None and all statements from the senses. He's saying all have their throats stinking this way. Why is it even as believers, those who have been regenerated by God's power and by God's grace, why is it that that bad smell comes out again so frequently? Vile words, hateful words, despising words, cutting words. 
rise up from the sinful heart of man. Words that speak untruths about others, that attack fathers and mothers, that flatter, tempt, dissuade from the truth, turn aside after evil and after lies. Every kind of sinful word is hateful and stinks before God. Paul here is saying that every man and every woman, every boy and every girl, has a throat that by nature stinks before God and man. He says there in verse 13, with their tongues they have used deceit. Not only is the throat a vile, stinking thing by nature, but their tongue is full of deceit. Lying and deceit are so common to us that we might say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, sure, my tongue has spoken deceit, maybe a white lie. Well, Paul doesn't give it any color. Whether it's blue or green or purple doesn't matter. The statement is simple. With their tongues, they've used deceit. Remember that tongue, that little member in your mouth was created by a holy God for holy use. Again, takes us back to God's image. What were we created to be? Images of God. What was Adam supposed to say to Eve? Heavenly things, holy things. It was supposed to be a true paradise in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve reflecting God's glory to one another. And then when they would have children reflecting that glory to that child, and it would continue on in a glorious reflection of God's truth, as together they began to learn about the wonderful world that God put them in, and as they communed with God at the same time. That was what it was supposed to be. The words were supposed to exalt God and edify one another. So for our tongues to speak one deceit is to break, to smash, to destroy that image of God. The tongue was intended for the service of his truth. So deception, exaggeration, fibbing, tricking, cheating have no place on that tongue. Every tongue, Paul says, has used deceit. If your tongue has used deceit once, it's defiled. But how many times has my tongue used deceit? How many times have I dishonored God with my tongue? What does he go on to say? Paul is giving us, he's putting us through the ringer. Not only is their throat an open sepulcher and their tongues have used deceit. And remember where he says there, he means our. He's speaking of Jews and Gentiles. Remember, the whole point is, are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles. They're all under sin, religious and non-religious, children of Christian parents, the heathen. They're all, they're all in the same boat by nature. They have different circumstances, different outward things going on. Some wear suit coats and some don't, but they're all the same inside. He says their throats stink, their tongues have used deceit, and the poison of asps is under their lips. We're all scared of snakes, at least I am. And we don't want to be bit by a poisonous one, especially. Paul says you don't have to go further than your own self to find a venomous creature that will spread poison. And he's quoting that from Psalm 140, verse 3. Not only does the wicked throat stink and the wicked tongue speak deceit, but the wicked lip poisons and destroys like a snake. How does God view your mouth? Every pair of lips carries poison by nature. It's in you like a snake, and it's natural to you just like a snake has its poison natural to it. It doesn't have to sit there and try to figure out how to make venom. It comes out. 
Then he goes on and he says, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's Psalm 10:7. Every mouth full of cursing and bitterness. Where does all of this come from? Where does all this poison, this evil, this darkness come from to come into your throat, your tongue, your lip, your mouth? Jesus solemnly declared in Matthew 12, 33 through 37, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. Oh, generation of vipers, snakes again, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. It comes from the heart. And Jeremiah told us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's incurable. It's terribly defiled by sin. Praise God, I know someone who can heal it. Someone who can change it. Someone who can deliver from this terrible condemnation. But Paul doesn't stop there. He said enough. We've been condemned. But he goes on. Verses 15 and 17, he speaks about our feet. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace, they have not known. The wise physician, our God, goes down from the top of the head down to the feet. The head represents our speaking or communicating faculties. And the feet represent our actions, where we go, what we do. What God sees is not good. This top-to-bottom exam reminds us of Isaiah 1.6. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness or health, wholeness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. The picture is of a leper, his extremities being eaten out by disease, his nose, his ears, his fingers, I don't know if you've ever seen one of those pictures from India of people suffering from advanced leprosy, but they're like living death. It's, it's reflected in our modern culture with the idea of the zombie, which is totally a fiction, but the idea of someone living in death is the whole idea here. That's what God says is true of us. Maybe our modern culture loves the idea of zombies so much because that's, what, that's the way we are spiritually. We drag around this corpse with us. In God's common grace, parents and governments present cer- prevent certain terrible outward crimes by executing justice in society. But every heart of every soul in this room, apart from God's intervening mercy and grace, would rush to shed someone's blood. Destruction and misery would be your daily pursuit, and you would be a stranger to the way of peace. That's a harsh sentence. And we we sometimes look in ourselves and we don't see that in us. Well, we're blind. We're blind. God's testimony is true. And our testimony of ourselves is very, very optimistic. Then he moves to their eyes. Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Oh, the eyes. What they tell us. 
There's a pair of eyes in this building that I love a lot. I like to look deeply into them. I see there love and desire and kindness and generosity. And they belong to a beautiful woman who's here tonight. But what does God see when he looks in our eyes? As a parent, when we're having a little difficult time, we might have that little one stop what they're doing, face us direct on, and I'll look into their eyes. What am I looking for? There's something indescribable that you can see in someone's eyes. It might be the fire of anger and aggression. It might be a stony look of rebellion and hard-heartedness. It might be a glint of covetousness. It might be jealousy or envy. But what does God see in the eyes of every man, woman, boy, and girl by nature in this room tonight and in the world? Well, he sums it up with a negative. Sometimes when you want to make a powerful point, you deny the opposite. To say we had a terrible time, you might say it wasn't any fun. To say an accident was horrible, you might say it wasn't pretty. What does God say about the eyes of sinful men? There's no fear of God before them. It's kind of an understatement. You might say, well, what was there? Maybe it was pretty good otherwise. No, if there's no fear of God, it was all bad. It was all wretched. It was all vile. So the heavenly physician has done his physical, and then he gives his full prognosis in verses 19 and 20. He gave us the census. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none good. He gives us the physical. He tells us about our mouth, about our feet, and about our eyes. And it's a bad picture, terrible picture. And my friends, what we're hearing now is the same things we'll hear on the day of judgment. It's... I, I cannot reflect to you the seriousness and the sobriety of God's word on these things. This is not something small and light. It's not like, well, yeah, we're pretty bad. All right, let's go on to something else. When God says you're bad, that's serious. That's eternally serious. So then the heavenly physician gives his full prognosis, verses 19 through 20. And the summary again is, there is none righteous. Here he says, for you, there's no medicine in the law. There's no hope for you in the law. Paul's dealing with Jews and Gentiles, as, we, as you might see in Romans 1 and 2. And he's telling them here, by changing your behavior, by starting to obey God's law, there's no hope for righteousness. Oh, my friend, you're sick in your natural condition. And the end is death, destruction, an eternal fire. Paul said in this very same book what the reward of unrighteousness would be. He said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then in chapter 2, right before where we are, he said, But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. And that's the wrath of the Almighty God. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. You might say, well, I see, I've failed. I'm going to turn over a new leaf, and I'm going to do much better. No, God does command you to repent, to turn from your wicked way and to seek his face, but that will never make you righteous. You need something more. Didn't you hear Paul say, there's none righteous, no, not one. Do you think you'll just drag it up out of your own inner being? 
Do you think you'll make up your own righteousness? Okay, well, let me learn the right religion, and I'll educate myself with spiritual things, and I'll make myself acceptable to God. No. Did you not hear Paul say, there's none who understands? Okay, well, I will give myself to religious activities, fasting, prayer, and I'll do more religious rituals until I cleanse my sin and find peace for my soul. No, you just missed what Paul said. There's none who seeks after God. You wouldn't be seeking God. Your best religious endeavors would be just a fine piece of idolatry, decorated sin. You need something far, far better than that. Well, I know that Jesus told us that the greatest commandment is to love God with all my heart and to love my neighbor as myself. So I'll start there. I'll try to do something good for someone every day and do things for God as well. No, you have it all wrong. Sin has so defiled your every thought, word, and action that your supposed love for God and others is no love at all. You are under sin. Under sin, you're a slave of sin. And your good deeds are no better than nicely painted filth. Didn't Paul say, there's none good? No, not one. So what goodness do you think you'll offer up to God? So what shall we say? Is there no hope at all? Well, no hope in the law. No hope in changing our behavior. No hope in my efforts. No hope in good works. What things soever the law saith, here Paul says in verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that word under again, under its condemnation, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The only way to get out free from God's court is first to get a guilty verdict. You must be guilty before you can be redeemed. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. There's none righteous by the law. No, not one. So what's the prognosis? Medicine of the law won't help. It won't help. So the first passage, the first section of our message and the first passage that we've looked at from verses 9 through 20 is summed up in the words, none righteous. None righteous. And we can add on, no, not one, to it. None righteous. So what does Paul go on to after that? Secondly, he goes on to all righteous. Just when God, by his apostle quoting the prophet, says, shut us out from hope, we see we have nothing, are nothing, can do nothing, then he brings glad tidings of joy, which shall be to all people. It comes from God. It doesn't come from us. It comes from his declaration, his purpose, his plan, his salvation. When the Red Sea of our sinfulness has trapped us in to wait for the dreaded sentence from God and the Pharaoh of God's wrath is upon our backs, God parts the water for us. Amen. Ah, here are the beautiful feet of the one who brings the good news, proclaiming peace and a righteousness which no man can defile. 
Oh, praise God for his mercy. Bless our Father and our Savior for his great love to sinners. We will praise him to all eternity because his salvation is great. If we did it, we might always fall out of it. If we could fix ourselves up, maybe the well of goodness would run dry. But it's God's righteousness we have to do with. Praise his name. Free justification by faith alone is God's good gift to bad people. How does he start this section? But now, verse 21, but now. It's a transition, a change, a change from death to life, from prison to the kingdom, from weakness to power, from despair to hope, from sorrow to joy. We had none righteous in verse 10. Now we have in verse 22, which is just down a little bit, we have righteousness unto all and upon all them that believe. Righteousness unto all and upon all who believe is proved by the Bible. Because maybe you say, well, this is too good to be true. I don't know if I can believe this. The righteousness which we're about to talk about, that he's, Paul's about to mention, first of all, before he talks about it, he proves it from Scripture. He says there, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, before you challenge me, the law and the prophets speak of this. God's word testifies to it. Where is it? Where in the Old Testament, which was the scriptures that Paul had? Well, it's all over it. There's a few examples. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Deuteronomy said, The Lord thy God gives you not this good land to possess for your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. David said, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Psalm 32. Isaiah has many passages on this, but we'll just quote one. Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness, and strength. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. We could go on and on. Jeremiah, the Lord, our righteousness. We could talk about the sacrifices that typified the righteousness that God would give to his people through Christ. The, the law and the prophets, the scriptures of God demonstrate, they prove a righteousness that does not come from inside you or me. So where does it come from? Verses 21a and 22a. 21 at the beginning says, but now the righteousness of God. 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. Of God, it's provided by God. This righteousness unto all and upon all them that believe comes from God. This is God's righteousness. Righteousness of God. What does that mean? Righteousness of God. Righteousness in general, we mentioned it before, is a measuring up to God's perfect standards. Perfect standards. It means being approved by God's law, both free from the guilt that would make us subject to his penalty and possessing virtues that please and honor God. God is always righteous. He's the standard, and he always measures up to his own standard. That's what righteousness is in general. Now, the phrase, the righteousness of God, or the concept righteousness of God, can be used in three different ways, at least. There's probably more. But one way is it can be used to describe God's righteous acts. 
the righteousness of God, the righteous acts of God. Two, it can be used to describe God's righteous character. But is that what he's talking about? Or third, it can be used to describe God's righteous standing with himself. In other words, his approval of his own actions. When God looks at himself, what does he see? Perfection, righteousness, because he is the standard and he has the right to be perfect. And he's absolute, he's infinite, he's glorious, he's great. And when he looks at himself, he's happy. He doesn't even need to look at us. He didn't need to look at the earth and say it's good. He just looked at himself. He's good. And I believe because of what Paul says here and in other parts of Scripture, including the Old Testament and the New, that when he says righteousness of God in this passage, he's talking about God's approval of himself. And the reasons for that, because this is crucial. This is crucial. The reasons for thinking that, remember there were three basic ways that we might talk about the righteousness of God. Well, the first one was God's acts. Well, he's talking about something that benefits sinners. They don't do God's righteous acts. And Paul made that much clear to us. He made that much clear to us. Sinners don't do God's righteous acts. So when he says the righteousness of God, he doesn't mean, well, if I start doing the righteousness of God, didn't he just take that away from us when he said there's none righteous, no, not one, none good? We can't do God's righteous acts. Secondly, he's not talking about God's righteous character in itself, an infused righteousness, like something that comes into us. Now, God does give us his righteousness by the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, but that's different. We're talking about our standing before God. How do we stand before this holy God? We don't stand on the basis of sanctification. We don't stand before him on the basis of regeneration. God's infusing righteousness into us, putting in our hearts his righteousness, is a work of the Holy Spirit. But that's not how we stand before God. The righteousness that he works in us is glorious, but it's not perfect in this world. Do you still sin? How are you going to stand before God and say, well, I didn't sin as much after you saved me? What righteousness is that? A defective one. Paul said that the lip, the, the tongue, has spoken, iniqui- has spoken deceit. Just once qualifies for that. So if you've sinned once, that righteousness will not carry you. We need a perfect righteousness before God. What was the third view of righteousness of God? The approval that God views himself with. That's a positional thing, a legal thing, an approval thing. God looks at himself and sees righteousness. The righteousness of God, I believe that's what he's talking about. Now we'll have to see how it works in order to understand how that can be. How can God view us with the righteousness that he sees himself with? He's not looking at righteousness when he looks at us. How can he do that? How in the world can that work? Sinners approved with the approval that God approves himself with? Just wait and see. It's all here. Righteousness unto all and upon all them that believe is procured by faith. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. That there is no difference refers to Jews and Gentiles. There's no difference. They're all saved the same way. 
Then in verse 25, he says, whom God, speaking of Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Verse 26, he describes God as the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. So we haven't yet answered the question of how it works that God approves us with the righteousness that he sees in himself, but we see that it comes to us by faith, not by works, by faith, believing God. Brothers and sisters, don't try any tricks with God. Don't try to get God to treat you as righteous. The approval with which God approves himself is placed on your account when you believe in Jesus. But how does God do that? Now, God could not tell us because he doesn't have to tell us all things. We could just have sinful curiosity. But in this case, this is one of the most central truths of all the Bible, and he tells us all over the place. And Romans chapter 3 is one of those places. How can God do it? By Christ's work of redemption and propitiation. He uses two words in verses 24 and 25. So how can God look at sinful, wretched, evil, vile human beings among whom there's none righteous, no, not one, their, their tongue, lip, mouth, throat, all rotten, their feet run to evil, their eyes have no fear of God in them. How can God look at these people and say, I approve of them with the approval I approve of myself with? One, redemption. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Think of Boaz. I don't know what he looked like, but he probably had a big beard. He was the kinsman redeemer of Ruth, that short story in the Old Testament that's very sweet. Ruth was not an Israelite, not part of the covenant community of God. By nature, she had no access to the fields of Bethlehem. She had no rights to worship God in the tabernacle, and she had no right to be in the line, the lineage of the king of Israel. But she married a man named Malon, who was from Bethlehem, and that marriage gave her a legal right. Then after her husband died, you know the story, Boaz took her under his wing, as it were. He paid her debts, gained her and her property. Boaz was her redeemer. Now his land is hers, and hers is his. His rights in Bethlehem are hers. When he sits in the gate, she sits in the gate, even if she's not there. She belongs to him, he belongs to her. Christ is our Boaz. Christ is our redeemer. He came and paid all our debts. All we brought to the marriage was sin and debt, and all he brought was cash. He brought enough of it, too. And he brought all the merit, all his works of salvation that he accomplished were done as our Redeemer, as our Boaz, our kinsman Redeemer. Why did God set that up if it wasn't for this? God did all of that, that, that tradition of having a kinsman Redeemer. That was for us. That was to see Christ. What kind of righteousness did Jesus bring to the deal? What did he bring to the marriage? The righteousness of God. Exactly. That's the point. So how does God view sinners as being righteous with the righteousness that God has through our Redeemer. It's a legal relationship. It's a covenant. All his works of salvation that he accomplished were done on our behalf. He's our Redeemer. 
He brought perfect righteousness, the righteousness of the very Son of God. God of very God, as well as man of very man. Why did he become man? So that he could be united to us, so that he could represent us, and so we could unite with him and be his. Amen. So the righteousness that he has, because he's God, He's the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things that were made in the beginning weren't made with anything else but with Him. I didn't quote that correctly, but it'll come later. So the righteousness He has is the same one we mentioned, God's approval of Himself. Jesus didn't come to make us act better by Himself. Jesus didn't come to give us the righteousness of God in the sense of, well, okay, here, now start doing better. All right, now I'm going to be happy with you. He did come to make us act better, but that's not where it starts. And that's not where our relationship with God is. Our relationship with God is based on his merit, based on our covenant with him. Not a covenant we make, not a deal we make, not us asking Jesus into our hearts, but Jesus dying on our behalf, living on our behalf. He lived a righteous life, meriting God's pleasure and satisfaction with us by his perfect righteousness. And he died a righteous death, Meriting for us the forgiveness of our vile sins. The non-righteous, they can now be forgiven. Those tongues and throats and mouths and lips that are so vile and filthy, God does not see them. That is astonishing. And I'm talking about God's people. I'm not talking about those who are not in Christ. If you're not in Christ, flee to Christ. Go to the Redeemer. Find your Boaz and be in him. Don't be found in anyone else's field like they told, the, they told Ruth in that story. He died a righteous death. He got forgiveness of sins for us. He cleansed us from the deep stain in God's record book. And now we're no longer poor Moabite girls. We're the wife of Boaz. We are now part of the line of the purpose of God, the king of Israel, we're no longer a sin-soaked criminal in God's court. We're the spouse of our King Jesus. It doesn't matter what we were. It doesn't matter what our tongues were. It doesn't matter what our feet were, our eyes were. God doesn't see that. Our spouse, our husband, is the king of the universe. There's no better match than that. Our righteousness is God's approval of himself. Paul not only calls it redemption, but he, he makes it better. He calls it propitiation through faith in his blood. That's in verse 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Not only is Christ our Boaz, our Redeemer, but he has made propitiation for us. Now, propitiation is a kind of hard word. It's a little bit long. But you remember that golden box, the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Inside it, there were two tables of stone on which was written God's Ten Commandments, representing God's righteous demands. Outside and above that box were the holy cherubim angels guarding that box, maybe reminiscent of the cherubim with the flaming sword keeping the way to the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve could not go back in. The, God instructed Moses to put a thick curtain in front of that box. And behind that curtain was called the Holy of Holies. And only one man in all Israel could go in there only when God said, 
and that was one time per year. And he only did one thing. He took blood and he sprinkled it in that room. No one else was allowed to go there. And no one else was allowed to do anything else there. There was only one thing he could do there, but he wasn't allowed to stay once he put the blood on there. He had to go back out and close the curtain. God's glory was still hidden from their eyes. The top of that ark was called, in our Bibles, it says the mercy seat. The Greek translation of the Old Testament translated mercy seat with the same word that's used here as propitiation in Romans chapter 3. Israel, we could think of Israel as having sinned. They've worshipped other gods. They've made idols. They've broken the Sabbath day. They haven't honored their fathers and mothers. And if you read the history of Israel, you know it was true. They fell into great and grievous sins. They killed. They committed adultery. They stole. They lied. They coveted. But when that priest went in there once per year on the Day of Atonement with the blood of that innocent animal, he was saying, oh, forgive Forgive, we pray. And God said, they will be forgiven. Why? The breaking of God's holy law, the the tarnishing of his righteousness was atoned for by that blood. When our blessed Lord Jesus hung, suspended between heaven and earth by the nails of the cruel cross, rejected by earth and bearing the cursed load of our sin as he shuddered in agony, he cried, it is finished. And the veil of the Holy of Holies in the temple tore from top to bottom, and the mercy seat was opened. The priests had to hide their faces. The gold was clear. It was open. Why? They didn't need to kill any more animals and put any more blood on that thing. Jesus had opened the way. Jesus had died on that cross. His blood was spilt. His blood has perfect merit. The merit of God himself. The righteousness of God himself. And so now when God looks at his sinful people, what have they done? They've worshipped other gods. They've made idols. They've committed all those sins. They have filthy tongues and mouths and throats. They have filthy feet. They have defiled eyes. There's no fear of God in their eyes. What does God see? The blood of Jesus. And he's happy. He's satisfied the righteousness of God himself. Satisfies God. Yours wouldn't do it. If you could drag up some little righteousness from inside you, what good would it do? It would damn you. Jesus satisfied the Father, and God looks at him and is pleased. The way is open. Come in. Come into the holy place. Don't stay outside. Come in. Righteousness unto all and upon all who believe is not only provided by Christ in his redemption and his propitiation, but it's also approved by the Father. It has the seal of heaven upon it. It's no shoddy, unjust, fly-by-night method of getting your sin swept under the rug of God to hide it from him on the day of judgment. The Father wouldn't allow such a trick. Paul says that this was no cover-up deal. It was a genuine transaction when we reach heaven's gates we will have paperwork we will not be like ignorance who arrived at the gate in pilgrim's progress and when they said where's your role he fumbled in his coat 
and he didn't find it. And John Bunyan says, I saw that there was a door to hell right at the door of heaven. But Jesus has done a genuine transaction for us, a real work. When we reach heaven's gates, they will let us in. We won't be left in the lurch with some counterfeit pass because God has approved the work of Christ. God is vindicated for having overlooked the sins of his saints. You might say, that's unrighteous, unjust for God to let sinners go free. There's none righteous among them, none. How does God let them get in? Well, he's approved it because he's satisfied with his own righteousness. Verse 25b, to declare, so let's start at the beginning of the verse, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. By his work of redemption and by his saving sinners, he declares his righteousness throughout eternity. All eternity will bear witness to the righteousness of God. No one will ever say, um, but God did something a little underhanded there with that Jesus thing. Are you sure that was all straight? It was straight. God's righteousness is defended and cleared, and it's done. There will be no question about, the, about this, this righteous deed that was done by Christ. Paul says in verse 26, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. God is just, and that means sinners will be punished in eternal fire. But because of the work of Christ, and only because of the work of Christ, not by any works of righteousness which we have done, but only the work of Christ, God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Remember that word believes. It's by faith. So here we are at the end of the text that we're looking at. We've taken a journey from none righteous to all righteous. None righteous by nature, all righteous who believe in Jesus. All who believe in Christ are justified, declared righteous as God himself is righteous. Oh, my friend, if you are without Christ, you are hopeless in yourself. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He did the work. It's done. And it's gloriously done. And the Father will accept his righteousness. He will give you a firm hope. Your condition will not be hopeless anymore. And your condition will be the best possible. You will have on your account the righteousness of the Son of God himself. God will not be pleased with you. He'll be pleased with Christ. Then he'll be pleased with you for Christ's sake. Sinner friend, you can be approved before God with the approval with which he approves himself. Christ has completed the glorious work. It is finished, Jesus cried. You have no excuse. You have the word of God. Trust Christ. My Christian brethren, brothers and sisters, stop trying to justify yourself again by the law. Now, it's tricky for the Christian. And the reason why it's tricky is because the law still has certain uses for us. We still do need to read the word. And whether we're talking about the Ten Commandments or other commands in Scripture, it teaches us what God's will is. It helps us see God's holiness and perfection. We should be well marinated in the holiness and righteousness of God's requirements in the law so that we can bring others to conviction and faith in Christ and so we can convict ourselves and repent of our sins. Just like Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, that the scriptures were given by inspiration of God and are profitable for all kinds of uses, including reproof and correction and instruction in the way of righteousness. So we do have 
responsibilities, but our natural sense of self-righteousness hijacks those responsibilities. Never use the law as a manual for how to get peace with God. Never use obedience to the law as your comfort and hope to make yourself feel accepted with God. That is sin. It's idolatry. Use the law as a measuring stick to see your progress in obedience, to drink, bring you to repentance, humbling before God. Sometimes, like James says, weep and howl. That might be included. But your hope is not in the law. Your hope is not in those instructions. Your hope is not in Christ's law. Your hope is not in the New Testament laws. Your hope is in Christ and Him alone. And then you come to the Word of God and you say, all right, now I want to live for Him. Didn't He do so much for me? Okay, how does He tell me to live? I want to live in it. I want to do it. Don't look for comfort, assurance, approval in the law. By law, I mean all of God's commandments, which, which we love. The thing is, we love them. And we want to be in conformity to them. We look at them. We read Christ's commandments. We read the, the Old Testament commandments. We read all of God's word. And we, we look at it and we say, this is beautiful. This is what I want. And I'm not there. Our approval with God is perfect. Never forget that. He approves himself with the same approval he approves you with. So now with the righteousness of God himself on your account, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with joy. Serve the Lord with gladness. If Christ lived and died for you, go out and live for him and die for him. Amen. The lamb is worthy. Now he owns your every breath. You belong to him. All you are and all you have, don't hold back anything from your heavenly Boaz. Do you think Ruth should say, well, I don't know if I can give you all these little trinkets that I have. You know, I mean, I have to hold back some of these for me. She gives him everything. He gave her everything. And what he gave was so much more than what she could give. If you were a poor Moabite woman with no clout in the world, Christ has given you a great living. Remember, he brought all the cash to the marriage deal. Go and live with him and for him with great joy and serve him to all eternity. If you would, let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, thank you for the righteousness of Christ. Lord, the approval that you approve yourself with. Lord, we thank you for it. Thank you for the death of Christ on that cross. Thank you that he said it is finished. Thank you for the mercy seat that has been sprinkled for us. Lord, we sang that song tonight about the mercy seat in another sense. Lord, a place of coming to pray before you. And Lord, now it's open. Now it's clear. Now it is ready for us to come. Help us to come into your presence with joy, to live boldly, readily, heartily. Lord, to live for you and to die for you because you've lived and died for us. For Christ's sake, amen. If you would stand with me and for the benediction, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So brethren, rejoice and stand in the grace that Christ has given you. Amen.